Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the middle of the Caribbean. This time it's episode 78, and we're going to talk about how a cruise ship is like a van, or van life is like cruising, or I'll figure it out by the time we get there. We're also going to talk about a museum in Vermont that is a museum itself, why self-tapping screws are not the best thing in the world, but almost are, and a tale from the road involving a taxi, a pirate, Jules Verne, and James Bond. Welcome back, everyone. Very happy to be here with you. Although I am not here with you, I am here with my wife in the Caribbean on the very first cruise that Celebrity has done since the pandemic. This was a little bit of a last minute thing. And for those of you who've been following the show and don't know why I mention cruises as often as I do, I actually am a travel agent, have a travel agency, and it is a cruise-only travel agency. (laughs) And as you can imagine, over the past year, we haven't had a lot of business. And I don't talk about cruises very much because this is a van life podcast, and if I wanted to talk about cruises, I'd have a cruise podcast, which I don't. But I find myself on the cruise, and I find myself doing a podcast relating to van life, and I'm thinking, what if we combine the two? And at first, that might seem impossible. I mean, what can be more different? Going on a cruise or building your own van and heading out west. On the one hand, you've got this big, huge, floating Las Vegas resort that you kind of stumble onto, and then it just takes you wherever it wants to go, and you get off on some island and wander around and come back. And on the other hand, you've got this old beat-up van that you turn into this amazing expedition vehicle and then you head out into the wilderness and see all kinds of nature and become enlightened and meet interesting people, etc. Well, folks, I think the two are actually related and can be compared to one another. Are you still there? Are you still listening? Good. Give me a chance to explain myself. And it is okay if you disagree with me. But there are some points to make here that are valid. Cruises and vans have several things in common. The number one most important thing that they have in common is they're both about travel. Nobody's going on a cruise ship and having it sit there, and no one's building out a van and living in their driveway in the van. All right, both of those things are wrong. But in general, most people aren't doing that. Most people are doing these things to travel, to go and see the world. And cruise ships and vans are two ways to do that. So you've got that one thing in common that I would argue is enough. But you know what else is in common? (laughs) Minimalism. Yes, I know that sounds ridiculous on the face of it. There is nothing minimalist about a cruise. Cruise ships are these massive hulks of steel that burn unbelievable amounts of fuel, waste incredible amounts of food, and cost a lot of money. What is minimalist about that? Well, actually, it's minimalist in the way that there is a limited amount of space and therefore everything in the cabin has to sort of serve two purposes and it has to be super efficient. Now, side note here, if you're my age or for some reason you watched The Love Boat a lot and you got an idea that The Love Boat is what cruising is like, know that The Love Boat, which was the old Pacific Princess from the 70s, actually a very small ship, The the cabins are not what they showed on TV. What they showed on TV is more like a suite in a hotel. What you find on a ship 
is a much smaller rectangular room, anywhere from 80 square feet, which is the smallest I've seen, up to normally 180, 190 square feet. And then of course there are suites that are much bigger. But you can basically think about 180 square feet. Now that would be a lot of space when compared to a van. We're talking about like a box truck's worth of space. But it's still pretty small when you compare it to a hotel. And all the furniture has to be very, very carefully designed. And if you're building out a van, you can learn things from seeing how a stateroom on a cruise ship is built out. For example, the materials used. Well, I can tell you on a cruise ship, there is no wood. I mean, there's a little bit, but it's only used for decorations. Cruise ships need to be durable, they need to handle motion, and they need to be cleanable. These are all things that are true of a van. And while there's nothing wrong with building out your van's interior with recycled pallets or Japanese burnt wood or whatever technique you want, there's a reason cruise ships do what they do, and living in a van, you have that same reason. Also, the flooring. The flooring on cruise ships is one of three materials. It's either going to be tile, which is just like tile in a house, with a flex. I'm assuming they use a flexible mastic and a flexible grout, or it's going to be carpet, which is a European-style carpet that's synthetic, extremely low pile, very, very easy to clean. Or it's this synthetic wood material that kind of looks like teak, which is what they used to use on ships, but it's this incredible woodsy kind of, I'm sure it's some kind of a plastic, but it is great stuff. It's very, very tough very very easy to clean has a little bit of grippiness but not too much and honestly if you could find the stuff to build your van out of it that would be awesome the walls are steel covered with a material which means they're all magnetic by the way if you're ever on a cruise bring magnets and the ceilings are made out of steel panels and they lock into each other and make it a, a nice the ceiling looks nice in my opinion there's space for can lights and you could do that in a van too, although you'd probably lose some ceiling height. However, the other way to look at that is you have space for insulation. Then there are specific things. For example, the ship I'm on, Celebrity Millennium, is about 21 years old, and it's on its, I think, fourth retrofit. The most recent retrofit was in 2019, and when they did it then, they put USB ports everywhere in the cabin so that we can charge our devices. It's the first time the ship has ever had that because they are making the cabin meet the needs of people in the cabin today. It's exactly what we do in the van. And they've added this really cool kind of furniture concept, which I think would work great in a van. So I'm going to try to explain this to you. This would be better as a visual thing, but I don't actually have a way to do that over the airwaves. <laughs> so bear with me. Imagine a normal nightstand, okay? It has two drawers, very simple. No drawer pulls, just flat drawer fronts. But imagine if someone cut out the top inch of the drawer front halfway across. So it kind of looks like a very squashed state of Utah. And there's a space where you can put your hand and open the drawer. Now, obviously, that's what it's for, right? You put your hand in, you open the drawer. You don't need a drawer pull. You've saved money on hardware there. And you've got a hole for ventilation, too, which is also great. But it has another purpose that I think is super cool. You can put your charging devices in these drawers. You take your phone, your laptop, your tablet, whatever, plug it into the wall, and then put it in this drawer, and then close it. And that hole is a place for the cables to come out. And then if you want to use those things, you can actually open the drawer and use them without plugging them in or unplugging them, which is great because if you think about one of the biggest challenges of being in a van is keeping things neat. 
and this just helps with that. And it's the same problem you have in a ship. The cabin gets messy very quickly because there's limited places to put things. And at least it used to be this way, they give you tons of paper. Every day you get into the cabin, you end up with like 32 pieces of paper, which they have not done on this trip. Now, cruising and van life. Why would you want to do either? Well, some of those goals are very similar. One, as we mentioned, is you want to travel. You want to see places. Well, folks, the places you can see on a ship are different than the places you can see in a van. And one that I've been to is called Lifu. It's an island in the South Pacific, spelled L-I-F-O-U. Little tiny place, doesn't have an airport, basically has one road that goes through the middle. And then it has this amazing cenote that has this crazy history about Nautilus? Nautilus? Nautili? Nautiluses? I don't know how you say that. But they used to live in this cenote. And then they were all killed one day, all at once, because fresh water came in there. And they were found 700 years later. It's also the first place I tried kava, which is an amazing drug that probably I should try more of, <laughs> especially when I'm doing this podcast. Uh, that's a, a little side note there. Uh, but uh, yes, Lifu is an amazing place, and you will never get there in a van. The other thing people like to do in van life is meet people. If you meet somebody else in a van, you automatically know you have something in common. You know you have something to talk about. You can always talk about your vans, or you can talk about your dogs, since like 75% of you are gonna have a dog. The same is true on cruise ships. You have something in common with everybody else on the ship. You are travelers. And you might think, oh, but the average cruise passenger is blah, 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 blah. But let me tell you, there is no average cruise passenger. That isn't really a thing. This ship that I'm on right now normally has 2,100 passengers on it. And yeah, I know that sounds like a lot of people to have on a boat, but believe me, there's plenty of space. 2,100 people, I can tell you, with that many people, there's no average. You are going to find people that are interesting to talk to. My parents have traveled around the world on cruise ships, and their best and most interesting friends are people that they have met on ships. So it is a great place for meeting people. All that said, it may sound like I'm trying to talk you into selling your van and going on a cruise, and that isn't true at all. Cruising is its own thing, it's not for everyone, and neither is living in a van down by the river. These things appeal to different people for different reasons, and then, for a rare few of us, both of them appeal. <laughs> I love being on ships, I love being in my van, and that's why I do both. So if you do get the chance to go on a cruise, even though you'd rather be in your van, take the approach that the ship is just a big van that floats. And look around and see if you can pick up some ideas on how marine architecture can actually inform your van build. And even if it doesn't, if you let yourself, you will have a good time just floating around on the big wide ocean that takes up three quarters of this planet. Tech Talk. Hey, let's talk about an amazing invention that has a big problem that we don't talk about enough, and that is self-tapping screws. What is a self-tapping screw, you might ask? Well, this is a screw that is designed in such a way that it has a little drill bit at its very tip. It will drill its own hole and then screw into it. So it is self-tapping. It, it taps a hole for itself. And they are designed for metal. So you typically wouldn't use these for wood, although you can use them to fasten wood to metal. It's just that the final material, the part the screw bit goes through last, has to be metal. And, and they're amazing. They save you a ton of time. You put a self-tapping screw on the end of your drill, and you screw into the wall, and you're done. 
but there is a drawback to these. Well, there's actually a couple. Uh, one is that it's pretty easy to over-torque them. Now, your electric drill has numbers all around the edge of it, usually 1 to 16. That's your clutch. If you're using self-tapping screws, you want to set that to a number like maybe 12. You'll have to figure it out with your drill. But what this does is it prevents the drill from over-torquing the screw. It'll screw in and go, eh, 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 eh. that's good. That means it's as tight as you want it to be. If you don't do that, you risk the screw spinning in the hole and stripping it out, or, and this can happen, I've had this happen a couple times, is that it'll rip the head right off the screw, and then you're left with a piece of metal in your hole, which isn't exactly what you wanted, most likely. But the bigger problem, and the one that people don't talk about enough is, self-tapping screws are meant to be screwed in once, and then never, ever touched. You're never supposed to unscrew them, because if you unscrew them on the way out, they make the hole a little bit bigger. And if you do this repeatedly, you end up with a screw that's too small for the hole. Now, it's not that the drill bit gets any bigger. I mean, if you take a 1 8 inch drill bit and drill a 1 8 inch hole, it's going to be a 1 8 inch hole. But remember that this thing is spinning and wobbling. And that vibration actually makes the hole a little bit bigger than 1 8 of an inch every time it goes through. And these screws are much worse than drill bits for that. So what happens is people will put one of these screws in so for, say, a removable panel to hide electronics, and they screw it in, they screw it out, they screw it in, they screw it out, screw it in, they screw it out, and then the next day they find the screws on the floor because the hole can no longer hold them. The proper way to replace a self-tapping screw is with a bigger one. If you are in a situation where you are just, say, screwing pieces of wood to metal and you're never going to take them off, self-tapping screws can work great for that. That's not a problem. But if you're putting in a panel that's going to be removed a lot, make the effort to drill the hole yourself. Or if you want to do a really professional job, use a plus nut or something like that that creates very hard threads that are meant to be done and undone. A place to visit. Up in the north of Vermont, which they call the Northeast Kingdom, it's the uh, most rural part of Vermont, but there are a few towns and cities, and one of these is St. Johnsbury, Vermont. St. Johnsbury, Vermont used to be a very important city in the history of the United States because it was part of what it was called Precision Valley. It was where very precise machinery was made, such as scales. And the largest scale company back then was Fairbanks. Fairbanks Scales. Yes, they were in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, not Fairbanks, Alaska. <laughs> and when there's a large company in a town that's producing a lot of money, especially if it's a small town, they tend to have an influence on the town. And one of the places they influenced was the Fairbanks Museum. With some of the money they made, they built this museum way back in the 1890s. Now this museum was much larger and much grander than any museum you'd think you'd find in a small northeastern Vermont town. But it's still there. And now when you visit it, it's like a museum of a museum. This is a Victorian museum that you can still tour in the 21st century. And if you go in there and look, you can see how the entire place is designed to maximize light. Because museums need light so you can see things, right? But in the Victorian age, lighting came from mostly candles and lanterns, and I'm sure there was no electricity in the museum when it was first built. So the exhibits are designed to have windows behind them, and there are big skylights everywhere. And the second floor has a big opening in it to allow light to hit the first floor. 
And if you just take a step back and look, it's a marvel of engineering of light. It's all dark mahogany wood with ways for light to come in all completely around you. Now the museum has all kinds of exhibits from the Victorian age, including models of dinosaurs from before we really knew what dinosaurs looked like. Some of these are actually models that Charles Knight made, and he was the famous painter of dinosaurs, like the very first one. And, you know, people were just finding bones. No one really knew how they went together. So you go and you'll see, like, a model of an iguanodon that looks like an iguana, because that's kind of what the bones look like. Although we now know that iguanodons were bipedal and not quadrupedal. You can see a model of a quadrupedal iguanodon in this museum if that's something you want to do. They've also added a planetarium, and they also have a weather station in there that's an actual functioning weather center that produces weather for Vermont's public radio station. It is kind of a unique, fascinating place. I love all museums. This one holds a special place in my heart because it's so old, and they've changed very little. In fact, they've made exhibits out of some of the old exhibits, so what's being displayed isn't as important as the display itself. I'll have a link in the show notes, but next time you're up in northern Vermont, which I hope will be soon, check out the Fairbanks Museum in St. Johnsburg. It is well worth a visit. Tales from the Road! Alright, since I'm on a cruise ship, I figure I might as well tell you a tale that involves a cruise ship. Actually, it doesn't. It involves a van, honestly. So, One of the things I like to do when I go to ports that I've been to many times is I will ignore all the ship tours and I will just find a guy who lives in the island with a van or a taxi and say, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks and for the next five hours, Nassau, the largest city in the Bahamas, if you cruise at all, you're going to end up there. (laughs) It's kind of inevitable. And I've been there so many times now that, um, you know, it's not that exciting. But I had a great tour when I just walked down the pier and found a guy with a van and said, hey, take us to interesting places that tourists don't normally see. And here's where we went. First, we went to a cave filled with bats. This was a cave that was easy to walk into, and then you'd have bats flying around your head. That's pretty cool, although actually a fair number of tourists actually get to see that, but still, that's good. Worth the price of admission already. We're off for a good day. Then we went to a mansion that had been turned into a hotel that was built by a pirate in the early 1700s and still had some of the original furniture and piano from when the pirate lived there. That was pretty cool. Then we went to James Bond Beach, which is a beach in Nassau that a number of James Bond movies have been filmed on. So we got to have a little bit of that. Also filmed there was Jaws 4, which, you know... You haven't lived until you've lived a part of that fascinating movie, Jaws 4. But still. And then my favorite place we went to was this staircase carved into the raw limestone that led down to the ocean from a cliff. And from the top of the cliff, you could walk down to the ocean through the limestone, kind of like in a tunnel. And every so often there were these alcoves carved out that you were supposed to put a lantern in so you could light this up at night. It was called Pirate's Cove and the legend was, and in fact this is what the guy told me, was that pirates used to use this for smuggling. But I tend not to believe what tour guides tell me (laughs) so I'll look them up afterwards and I found out that what this place was was another movie prop 
It was made for the movie of the Jules Verne book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but not the Disney one. It was made for a silent movie that was made from the book in 1916, and it turns out it was the very first movie ever made to film underwater. And for this movie, they carved the staircase down for one scene. You can see it in the movie, which is public domain. I'll try to have a link to it. I'm not sure I can get you that on the ship, but I'll try. And I got to walk up and down the staircase that was 100 years old and made for a movie that was based on a Jules Verne book. Anyway, it's a very cool day. And what topped it off is we were introduced to Sky Juice, which is an alcoholic drink that's generally only found in Nassau. Now... If you go most places and ask for Sky Juice, they're going to give you a glass of water because it's a joke, right? It's sky Juice, juice from the sky, rain, water. Get it? Yeah. No, not in Nassau. Nassau, it is this amazing mixture of gin and coconut milk and a few other things. And uh, wow, I like it perhaps a little bit too much, which is another reason to go on a cruise is that you can overindulge and then you can still go to your next destination because you don't have to drive. That tale I have repeated in a few different places now. And if you, tr you are traveling anywhere and you want a tour guide to show you around, I highly recommend finding somebody with a taxi, preferably an older person because they have the most experience. Give them some money and say, take me to what you want to show me and you're going to have an amazing time. Resource recommendation. I was recently out in my van out west and I had done some laundry and I had these wet clothes and I was like, well, where do I hang these? I was not staying in one place long enough to hang them outside. And even though I was in the Nevada desert where you could dry a pair of jeans in an hour probably, I actually didn't have an hour. So I was like, all right, I'm in this little tiny van. I really need to put a clothesline in this thing. I'm like, where can I put it? And, and, I was like, and then it dawned on me how really kind of dumb I was being. I don't need a clothesline. I need a bungee cord. So I've mentioned before the value of hooks in vans, and I swear every time I go out in this van, I screw more hooks in. You can't have too many hooks. But when you have two hooks and a bungee cord, you have a clothesline. In fact, if you have a van full of hooks, you not only have a clothesline, you have multiple clotheslines, or you have an adjustable clothesline, or you can make a spider web of clotheslines. You can do whatever you want. And, and that's kind of the point, is that sometimes it's important to take a step back and think not what you need, but what you need to do. So I didn't need a clothesline. I needed a way to hang my clothes so they could dry. And when you think of it that way, you get out of the hole of thinking I need to buy a clothesline, an item called a clothesline, and find a way to install it. No, you start thinking more practically, like, what do I have that will help me accomplish my goal? And it turns out that a bungee cord and you can sandwich your clothes in between them and they won't fall off. So, screw clotheslines, bungee cords are better, and it's something you can do anywhere, between anything. So, throw away your clotheslines. No, you don't have to throw them away. but. Consider bungee cords instead of clotheslines. They're actually much, much better at the job. Q&A. Should I consider an ambulance for van life? Okay. I addressed this issue many episodes ago. In fact, someone wrote me and said that because of my commentary on ambulances, they decided to sell their ambulance and buy a van, which made me a little uneasy because I don't necessarily want to influence major decisions like that. But I mean, well, it's a podcast. 
full of things about things like that, so it's going to happen. But when would you definitely want to consider an ambulance? And the reason this question has come up a lot for me lately is because I'm in that situation. Ambulances can be had relatively cheap, although right now everything's expensive. We know that. I've talked about that a hundred times. But for the amount of vehicle you get and the amount of quality you get, ambulances are really pretty affordable. That doesn't mean they're great for van life. I'm going to give you the negatives first, so you know where I'm coming from, and then I'm going to give you the positives. First off, ambulances come out of the factory, get modified, get delivered to the ambulance company, someone at the ambulance company turns the van on, and then they don't turn it off for five years. Ambulances are never turned off. I mean, okay, I'm being hyperbolic here. But ambulances, from the start of the shift to the end of the shift, don't get turned off. They are always left on. And so you might find an ambulance with, oh, it's only got 75,000 miles on it. It's like brand new. Yeah, okay, that's 75,000 miles and 6,000 hours of usage. And every one hour equals 30 miles of driving. The other thing is that for the size of the vehicle, the interior is pretty small. There's a ton of storage cabinets on the outside that take up a lot of the interior space. So you end up with an eight foot wide vehicle that has an interior that is much smaller than that. So, you know, why do that? Why are you driving around this giant vehicle when your inside is much smaller? The other thing is, is that, and this, this is a really big deal, the wiring in these things is incredibly complicated. This is true for an old van or a new van, although they're complicated in different ways. In old vans, you'd have hundreds, and I'm not, this is not an exaggeration, you'd have hundreds of miles of wires connecting to the cab, to the back, going to all kinds of things, often poorly labeled, often built by companies that aren't in business anymore, so you can't even look things up. And on newer ones, you have another problem. Those cables aren't power cables, they're data cables. And so there's a computer screen up front and a computer screen in back, and the computer controls whether the lights go on or off, or the heat goes on or off, etc. And imagine if you have a problem with that. You can't just trace the wires. You've got to know electronics. You've got to have an oscilloscope. Yeah major major problem there you can see there's a lot of cons and of course you're going to run into registration issues insurance issues and all that as you do with any kind of vehicle that's a little bit uh, unusual i should have just talked you out of buying an ambulance and then it would make sense that i've talked myself out of buying an ambulance right well i'm very much a uh, do what i say not what i do kind of a guy and uh yeah no i'm, I'm actually planning on buying an ambulance so let me explain how i got from this is the stupidest idea ever to this is probably what you should do <laughs> or I should do. I'm only speaking for myself. I don't think anybody else should buy an ambulance because I want them to be cheap. No, I mean because I don't necessarily think it's a good idea for everybody. I want a vehicle that has an interior that's really, really high quality. Ambulance does have that and has a lot of exterior storage space because I want to take my College of Curiosity show on the road. Now, College of Curiosity, you hear me say that at the beginning of every podcast, it has many, many incarnations, but one of the things I do is I will go around with what are basically cabinets of curiosity and do demonstrations. And I've done them before theater shows, I've done them before kids, I've done uh, in a whole bunch of different places, I've done them on ships. I want to be able to do that in a vehicle that I'm ready at a moment's notice, that if I have a gig, I can take the vehicle and go and do that. And an ambulance is, off, is awfully perfect for that. First off, it's an ambulance, so it has a curiosity element built into it. 
Second, those exterior storage compartments suddenly are extremely useful because I don't want all that stuff in my living area. I want all the stuff to be in its area and I want me living in another area. Perfect for that. Also, and this is extremely personal, I like the way the inside of an ambulance looks. I like the aesthetic. I know, it makes me pretty rare. <laughs> but I like the artificial airplane spaceship kind of vibe you get from inside an ambulance. There's no wood, there's no flowers, there's no decoration at all. And I like that. <laughs> I'm probably the only person who likes that, but that's okay. There's ambulances just for me. So if you happen to be in one of those rare circumstances where an ambulance might be exactly what you want, go for it. There's, ambulances aren't inherently bad, they just present their own challenges. Oh, what's that? What's that I hear from, from way out in the distance? Why don't you just get a box truck then? Well, why don't I just get a box truck? I mean, if you think about it, an ambulance is a box on a truck, box truck, box on a truck, and a whole lot simpler. Well, they're not built the same. They're not even close. Box trucks are made out of a very thin material. There's no storage. And you're basically starting with a completely blank slate that you'd have to build out completely. And that's great. That's awesome. I live in a condo. I don't have a garage. I don't have a great place to work on something. So that's another benefit for me is the ambulance is pretty much already built out. I just have to modify it. And I can do all that from inside the ambulance. It is its own workspace, and it has space to store the tools and everything. So, I don't have a date yet, but eventually I will be selling Pergurus, and I will be building out a camper van out of an ambulance or some similar vehicle, and I'll be hitting the road showing people weird things. If you are in a situation like I am, that you have an unusual need, and you like the way ambulances look, Absolutely, an ambulance could be a great vehicle for you, too. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode 78. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. For those of you who have requested stickers, I have them all saved up. I'm obviously not sending them from the Caribbean right now, but I promise you I have not lost your requests, and I will be sending you stickers soon. Until next time, remember the words of Marcel Proust. Proust? You know, that guy. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. <laughs> <laughs>